From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, Freetrade launches another crowdfunding campaign. Payhawk raises $112 million for the corporate card race. And Nike steps into the metaverse with Nike Land. All this and more on today's show. But before we start, we just want to tell you about something we're cooking up at 11FS and have a quick word from our sponsors. At SAS, they help their customers make banking simple, safe, and rewarding for everybody. They support banks in their goal to treat every customer as individual, combining data from across the bank with external information and real-time context. They deliver unique insights and a deep understanding of customers' needs. By applying these insights at the right time via the right channel, they help make every customer engagement with the bank a relevant, valuable, and seamless experience. SaaS enables banks to embed real-time intelligence in every interaction, helping them make smarter, faster decisions that transform customer experience. To find out more, search SaaS Banking. How does financial services get better? How does it get faster? And how does it get stronger? Come and help us answer those questions live in London on December 1st at the Fintech Insider After Dark, Better, Faster, Stronger. It's the latest live recording of our Fintech Insider podcast, That's right, we're back in front of a live studio audience. Stick around after the show for drinks, exclusive swag, and a chance to mingle with your favorite FinTech Insider hosts, as well as other FinTech fans. Find out more and get your free ticket now at bit.ly forward slash after dark, better, faster, stronger. That's bit.ly forward slash after dark, better, faster, stronger. Welcome to episode 584 of Fintech Insider. My name is Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Deepa Anakindi. How are you doing, Deepa? Very well, thank you. Lovely to be here. It's your first time on the news show. Do you want to give the listeners a brief introduction to you and your role at 11FS? Sure. Um, I'm a product lead at 11FS and have been building products in the FS space for basically far too long. Um, Most recently have been building a retail neobank out in the US. It's a super exciting proposition and a super exciting market. And of course, as always, we're joined by some very special guests. So firstly, making a welcome return, we have Polly Jean Harrison, Features Editor at the Fintech Times. Welcome back to the show, Polly. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me again. It's a pleasure. And last but not least, it's another welcome return for David Cunningham, Chief Commercial Officer at Lex Tigo. David, lovely to have you with us. Can you give uh, listeners a brief introduction to your company? Sure. Great to be back. Uh, it's Lex Tago, and we do transaction monitoring with uh, privacy by design. So essentially looking for fraud and money laundering for any type of transaction. And uh, that's where we specialize. Fantastic. Well, welcome back um, to, to both of you. And with that, let's get into the news. So our first story is that Free Trade has raised crowdfunding at about a £650 million valuation. Um, this comes from um, FinTech and Finance News, this story. Um, so Free Trade is the UK investment platform that's on a mission to get everyone investing. It's launched another crowdfunding campaign. It's the seventh publicly available crowdfunding round and will give prospective customers across Europe a chance to invest. At the time of this recording, the funding round on Crowdcube uh, has more than 800% oversubscribed, with more than £8 million pledged. Free Trade says it has a community of over 13,000 investors who have invested so far, along with venture capital firms such as Left Lane Capital, 
L. Catterton and Moulton Venture. Free Trade last raised on Crowdtube in May 2020, so if you're thinking you've heard this before, you have. It's because uh, it's not their first time. With the total registered users on the platform having increased from around about 150,000 to more than 1.1 million, the investment platform has raised more than $89 million to date, according to Crunchbase figures. And its revenues come through paid-for products such as individual savings accounts for £3 a month and a premium service with benefits such as 3% interest on cash deposits and access to individual stocks. So to hear a little bit more about Free Trade's plans for the funding and why they're returning to crowdfunding time and again, we reached out to Victor Neberhoy, co-founder and chief marketing officer. So our community has crowdfunded Free Trade into existence we actually do a race for them every year, every single year. There is so much growth capital available today in the world. It's painfully rare for individuals to be able to benefit from the massive growth potential that early stage companies represent. 2022 will be the year when free trade becomes fully European as we are expanding into various countries on the continent. So it was a no-brainer that we go back to crowdfunding again, as we just did open up the round, not just for our UK customers, but basically everyone else, if you are based in the European continent or rest of the world. So we quickly raised equivalent of 10 million euro yesterday. We set a number of records again, as we usually do. We became the first company ever on Crowdcube to raise six, uh, seven, and then eight million pounds in, in less than a day. There is no commission-free champion in Europe right now. We are on, on a mission to become that company. The race is still live. If you are outside of the UK, go, go to Crowdcube, uh, check it out, consider the risks and explore this investment. Excellent. Um, a really interesting story. Um, uh, Polly, you, you, must have, you must have seen this in the news. What's, what's your take on this? Why do they keep going back to um, Crowdcube? I mean, I personally, I think crowdfunding is just a really great thing within this industry. Like it just makes investment, you know, so much more accessible within fintech. I mean, with other industries as well. And it's just, you know, and obviously there's an appetite for it if they're 800% oversubscribed. And that number is just like kept going up over the past, you know, however, like every time you check it, that number is just going up and up and up. So clearly there's an appetite here. Um, and just crowdfunding in general, I feel, is just a really great way for companies to get alternative funding, you know, whether, you know, maybe they're not used to using, you know, traditional investments, obviously in free trades case, you know, they just keep going back and it just keeps working for them. And I think it's just fantastic. I'm old enough to remember Monzo or Mondo as, as they were raising a million pounds in 96 seconds. Uh, this was, uh, according to Free Trade's Twitter account, a uh, million pounds in seven minutes, which is still great. And then they went ahead and raised eight million in eight hours. I mean, it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal raise. And I think the, as Polly said, um, crowdfunding is just such a great thing. And I think being from outside the UK, I, I live in Ireland and um, it's, it's really taken hold in the UK. It's not as popular here. Um, I think because of the, the tax incentives, you know, for investments in the UK is, uh, is a little bit better. Um, in terms of uh, the EIS and that. But um, I think it's a really great way to build community. And it's really good to allow your your people to go on your journey, as we've seen with Curve in the past as well. Uh, I think 
free trade themselves are really interesting. They seem to be an honest broker um, in every sense of the word. And uh, in that they don't do uh, payment for order flow like we've seen with um, Robinhood in the States taking a lot of flack from people like Scott Galloway who invested in an alternative company. But uh, nevertheless, when when companies are, are selling to other traders, their the the appetite from retail customers uh, to institutions that's not a great look, uh, and it's not something that a lot of people are aware about that that's happening. The good news with 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 free trade is they don't do that, and uh, I I wish them you know every success. I think they're they're an honest uh, an honest business that allows companies to uh, allows individuals to to partake easily in the stock market, and uh, yeah, well done to them. To be clear, I think. Payment for order flow is actually illegal in the UK, but I, I still agree with you that yeah. it's still, you know, it's, it's 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 the right thing to do. It is, yeah. Deeper, it's a it's a natural fit, don't you think, for a, for an investment firm to to open itself up to investment from its its customers? Um, is is there more to it than that? Um, you know, David was just talking about community. Do you, do you, is is that relevant? Do you think that helps free trade? So I think from a product perspective, it's really interesting, obviously, because we talk about product market fit a lot and we obviously want our customers to vote with their feet. And I think this is a real kind of voicing of support across the, the customer base that, you know, there is that that keenness and that excitement for this to be expand, um, for this to really expand. And um, I think what's also really interesting with free trade is the the kind of belief behind it. And David, I think you alluded to this. So the, C, the CEO talks a lot about um, how investing is more of a long term thing, not necessarily a get rich quick which I think is really interesting and obviously contrasts to some of the, the firms we've seen in the past. Um, and I, from a personally perspective, personal perspective, I also love that this doesn't come at the cost of a great intuitive product. So you've got both sides of it there. How easy is it going to be for free trade to start winning customers across Europe? I mean, I think it's, you know, it was interesting um, hearing Victor saying, you know, there's no commission-free champion in Europe. I wonder how some of the, you know, European stockbrokers listening to this will be thinking about that. How easy is it for a British firm to sort of expand across the continent? Do you think there's lots of investors sitting in Europe just waiting for free trade to turn up? Or do you think they've got a bit more of a fight on their hands to persuade Europeans to uh, sign up? I mean, David, maybe as as, as the non-Brit on the call, what do, you, what do you think? I mean, do you think this will catch on in Ireland? I think it will be harder for them to scale across Europe. I mean, there are plenty of alternatives. Um, I think it's probably worth considering how this whole type of activity has exploded in the pandemic with a lot of people at home and perhaps with income that they would have otherwise spent on traveling or or something else have have engaged in in investing and uh, I think um, I think getting the type of funding and endorsement from Crowdcube which is uh, a tax in incentivized investment for the investors in that platform um, is is slightly different than seeing it translate into the market. I'd love to see them succeed. I think we need more of these these uh, solutions, particularly ones that go about educating the potential investors and trying to safeguard their needs. Uh, this is needed. Uh, I think. As as you've said, um, alluded to Benjamin, the payment for order flow thing, 
is also legal in Australia. Maybe free trade would do well there uh, because Robinhood and others who 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 have their business model, uh, you know, try to have their cake and eat it and sell that order flow. They might they might stay in the states and other places. But uh, I could see them doing well in Europe. Uh, I'd like to see them go to Australia and perhaps other places where payment for order flow is illegal. I think America, they slightly mentioned those in the in their press release, but uh, I think that would be a much harder battle as we've seen from uh, the likes of uh, N26 recently retreating. You made a really interesting point there about um, how the pandemic sort of encouraged people to spend more time paying attention to their investments. It meant that some people had more disposable income even while others had much less. Polly, do you think do you think we might be coming to an, the end of a sort of retail investor boom, or do you think people's habits have changed and people have, you know, learned that it's fun and you know rewarding to to manage your own investments? What, what do you think? Is this a is this the end of a little boom, or is this a permanent change? Do you think? I think this actually might be somewhat of a permanent change, to be honest with you, because obviously with the pandemic and lockdowns, everyone's had a lot more time to do a lot more thinking for want of a better word you know you've you can do a lot more research you can sit and actually think about in this case your finances and I guess as well with the uncertainty that it's brought in the terms of finances maybe people have wanted to be a bit smarter with their money Um, and the one thing that I think fintech does really well just in general is that it makes money fun Um, and there are so many apps and companies and things out there that just make investing fun and interesting. And especially when you see, you know, the rise of like TikTok and people on Reddit and stuff like that, everyone seems to be talking about investing at the moment. And one thing I do like about free trade is that it does seem to be genuinely trying to get people into investing and being, you know, fully accessible to everyone, which I just really love. And I think more companies should be doing this. Investing is a great thing and it's often, you know, it's often seen as perhaps, you know, uh, somewhat for people who have a lot of money or more traditional financial um, people background sort of thing. But actually investing is for everyone. And I really do think there's been a permanent shift and hope, well, at least I hope there's been a permanent shift and more people just starting to understand a bit better about what they can actually do with their money. Fantastic. Well, let's see. Good luck to uh, good luck to free trade, and uh, as, as David said, let's hope that they win lots more investors um, across across Europe. Okay, let's move on to our next story. Um, so the next story is that Payhawk has raised uh, 99 million euros uh, to expand its payment and expenses solution. So Payhawk builds software for back office finance teams that helps them do things like manage invoices, uh, manage company cards and expenses. Um, and its latest raise of 99 million euros puts the company's value at about 505 um, million euros. Um, so it's a Series B funding round coming after a boost just a few months ago earlier this year. Uh, this all equity round was led by US investor Green Oaks, with all the existing investors participating once again, such as QED investors and Early Bird Digital East. The company is pitching its one-stop shop product to high-growth businesses and says that transactions over its platform are growing at a monthly rate of 45%. Payhawk serves companies across 27 uh, countries across Europe and is looking to continue its global expansion with the United States, Netherlands, France, Australia and Singapore's um, locations identified to open new offices. Um, And it's also planning to launch a company credit card to corporate clients. And I should have said this story came from EU startups. So thank you to them. Wow, it's interesting because you know, this is a, a second a second round of, of funding pretty quickly. Uh, Deeper, this this 
space is quite crowded already. You know, you're, I'm sort of thinking of Spendesk and um, you know a, a dozen other fintechs that are already in this area: Plio, Revolut, Business, etc. Is there is there room for, for for more? Do you think there are still lots of unsolved problems in sort of business finances, or do you think it's um, a bit crowded already? So I think it's really interesting. I mean, interest rates are obviously at historic lows and money's quite cheap. So we're seeing a lot of movement in that space. Um, I think for me, it will come down to kind of what the product suite actually looks like. So obviously there's lots, as you say, you know, it's a very crowded market and I think it will become a quite tight battleground. And what will be interesting to see is kind of if we have a consolidation of a product suite, which actually does make the end-to-end journey for those uh, for those corporates a lot easier. And then following on from that, the, um, if we see a differentiation of revenue streams, so obviously we've got you know we've got the obvious kind of interchange and that kind of thing, but I think there's there's a level of differentiation that can can happen from that, and then you almost get the market can you know get blown open at that point. I'm interested by um, the news that they're planning to launch a sort of company credit card because I can't quite decide whether. Are we about to see an explosion of corporate credit cards? But as it becomes ever easier for companies to sort of issue, um, you know, prepaid cards or, or, or corporate cards to all of their employees, or are we actually going to see, you know, cards sort of fading away? You know, the pandemic presumably meant that a lot there was far fewer corporate expenses. Um, David, I don't know. Have you got a, have you got a view on this? Do you think do you think we're going to see more? Uh, corporate card adoption or do you think actually it's going to go away? I think, um, I mean, corporate travel is down. I mean, I I would have often arranged some meetings uh, around doing this FinTech Insider podcast in times gone by. And it's just, it's just cut out so dramatically now. I think um, uh, as, uh, as the research team had, had pointed out in the show notes, there's, Companies are really saving, and uh, with the pandemic even rising further, I think it's a really difficult time for corporate cards. Um, that said, there's never been more choice in terms of issuing those corporate cards. It is a very crowded market, to your to your point, and uh, and I would be I would be nervous about kind of branching into that. If um, but you know you have to salute their their fundraise again, showing further you know existing investors showing more confidence in them. But I think in the in the kind of core of their business, systemizing the back office, that is a really really challenging and a task that everybody hates when they just want to get on with uh, with their business and we've seen you know companies uh, like coconut in the UK do that really well um, and it, that that too is getting getting more and more competitive so international expansion and uh, and the the corporate credit cards, I'm on the fence in terms of uh, how how I how I would rate their chances of doing that, but uh, you know, wish wish them every success. So, Polly, do you think I've do you think I've misread this story in that it's 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 not so much about the, the credit card; it's more about, as, as David was saying, it's making the back office simpler and and simplifying things for sort of corporate finance teams. What's your take on this, Polly? I mean, I guess you could look at it from both ways. You know, I've agreed with everything that's been said so far. Obviously, everyone is all, it's all about the back office at the moment. I feel like all we talk about currently is the the back end and making things simpler for finance teams and 
for these kind of processes. But then again, with the corporate cards, I think there's still a market there because even though obviously we are all used to working from home or over Zoom or things like that, I think there's there's still that desire to go out and have have these meetings, go, you know, use these company cards for, for what they're for. So I do think that they're still needed. I don't think they're going away anytime soon. Um, but no, I just think... I think it, it's a very competitive market, as everyone has, has already said, but clearly this this big fast round has shown that there's still an appetite there and then there's a confidence there. And if anything, it's just saying, showing that the fintech space is competitive, but there's still a lot to be done and there's still a, a long way to go with these innovations and with these creating new products and services. Um, so it's just a very interesting one to keep an eye on, I think, definitely. Yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, as, as David said, you know, clearly the, the investors see see big potential here mm-hmm. um, um, in the market. You know, somebody else who's doing really well in the uh, building on on Polly's point uh, that adding cards to the back office and enabling enabling more streamlined expenses. It's not just about the travel. Uh, we see startups and scale-ups probably, you could call it now, in Kledara, uh, um, who have good good ties to the UK and Spain. They're really growing nicely um, with with their offering too, where uh, you know some 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 really good people behind that. So I think it is a really interesting space and and really growing because anything that can allow scaling companies to manage, let's say, as Cloudara do the the SaaS spend for the company and other elements. I I, I think the beauty of people not traveling all around the world is you can actually tightly control your expenses in a company uh, with, with far greater efficiency. You, you can really focus on the, on the things and refine and make some savings in the way you operate. So, you know, there, there's maybe maybe now is, there, is the time for people to get more and more efficient uh, now that we're all kind of stuck in our home offices. I certainly think any of our listeners who have had to file expenses in some, you know, awful antiquated system and spent hours, you know, typing in data or just you know anything that can be done to, to simplify the expense process you know particularly in sort of big you know big old corporates with you know woeful systems and processes from you know a couple of decades back waste so much time um you know you have people who are doing you know very busy jobs and then spending hours filing trivial expenses um i remember getting my oh in my old company my expense team called me up and said that I'd underestimated the distance from my house to Gatwick, and I'd claimed too, you know, too little money. And I'm like, yeah, okay, so I'm a pound off. <laughs> Was that really worth half an hour of your time to work that out? Anyway, so um, huge opportunity to improve things. Like, deeper, I'm looking, seeing some recognition on your face. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. So let's just take a quick pause uh, while you hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back shortly. If you've been in payments for any length of time, you've seen the number of payment solutions explode. That's great for consumers, but incredibly complex for merchants and developers. That's where Primer comes in. Primer is the world's first automation platform for payments. With Primer, merchants and developers have all the underlying infrastructure and Lego blocks they need to build the best buying experiences for their customers. Learn more and book a demo at Primer.io. Okay, so our next story uh, comes from Ireland, and this is the Irish banks are committing 5 million euros to a payment app joint venture called Cinch. Uh, 
Um, this particular story we picked up from Finextra. Um, so four of Ireland's largest banks have committed a further 5 million euros to the establishment of a multi-bank payments app. The app, dubbed Yipay, is being established as a rival to alternative offerings from non-bank competitors such as Revolut. Um, anybody who's got Irish friends or been to Ireland recently will have noticed that Revolut has become a bit of a verb in Ireland, a bit like Venmo is a verb in the United States. So Yippe is being developed by a joint venture company called Cinch Payments, owned by Bank of Ireland, AIB, Permanent TSB and KBC Ireland, and is headed up by Inez Cooper. Uh, the Italian firm SIA has reportedly been brought in to build the product, and the banks have so far put in 6 million uh, euros of initial capital to get the joint venture off the ground. Slated for launch next year, Cinch Payments has reapplied to the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission, CCPC, for approval after an earlier application in January failed to provide sufficient information for the Irish watchdog to make a judgment. So, David, I'm going to come to you first as, as, as the Irishman in the call. Can you give us your thoughts on this project? Do you think it's going to be a success? What's, what's going on here? How much of a threat are challenges to the traditional banks in Ireland? Well, uh, let's deal with the challenges first. Uh, I cannot believe how widespread uh, Revolut is, uh, particularly uh, among college students and but uh, I, I ran a Twitter poll yesterday just to to find out what people thought of this initiative and I was uh, made aware that it's not just a uh, uh, young you know under 30s who who are using Revolut it's it's so widespread um, N26 are really gaining a lot of traction here as well I think what we've what we've had just super quick background on the Irish banking kind of market we've had AIB and Bank of Ireland as the two incumbents really struggle to deliver a good user experience in their mobile offerings. That's being generous to them to say it wasn't good, it was terrible. And uh, Bank of Ireland just set out on a 900 million um, journey with with Temenos and uh, and others, to, uh, which has turned into a two billion journey to revolutionise their core banking. And and their app is still not not very good at the moment. AIB is a little bit better, but we've seen Ulster Bank uh, through um, RBS or NatWest uh, retreat from Ireland. Uh, we've seen KBC retreat quite a bit from Ireland, and um, the retail space has really because the user experience hasn't been so good in the in the mobile offering people really embraced revolut and it is used as you say as a verb to send money to each other i'll revolute you uh, you know it 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 absolutely has that so they've got um <clears throat> more than a million customers uh, you know there's only around 5 million or so people here so they're they're really really doing well maybe it's maybe it's a bit more maybe it's closer to 6 million but either way they've got a lot of a lot of lot of customers and they've really made a big dent there so the banks traditionally haven't came together to deliver um, better user experience for their customers. This is their first kind of foray into that. It's more or less spearheaded and been driven by the Banking Payments Federation of Ireland, which is um, really represents the incumbent banks, you could say. There's, there's very little input from any of the fintechs. In this particular initiative uh, to enable easier payments between, uh, between banks that 
it's it seems a little late. The reviews on on let's say my poll, uh, which got forty five votes, you know, so maybe not representative, <laughs> but uh, it was twenty four percent thought it was a good idea. Everybody else thought it was either a ter- terrible idea that Revolut is all people use or this is insanity. So it's, uh, you know, uh, it, it is it is not really, um, people aren't jumping up and down about how this is going to revolutionize the uh, tech space in Ireland. I can assure you that. Uh, in other, other aspects to it, uh, talking to some really deep um, see, fintech insiders, to use that uh, quote here, um, you know, people who have built great companies and are and uh, are now building more great companies in the fintech space, who have e-money institutions, they haven't been invited into this uh, into the tent here, and they have indicated also that look, this there's the banks in Ireland haven't embraced the European Payments Initiative, which is kind of be- uh, based on SEPE instant payments. Uh, so it is difficult still to to transfer money in a short space of time here in Ireland, um, and uh, you know my my sources say they'd lo- they'd like to see it go ahead, but uh, under a more a broader governance, uh, you know, inviting more fintechs in, and then perhaps maybe it could be a very good national offering, you know, similar to uh, Ideal or or Bank ID or something like that. But uh, in in summary. People don't have a lot of confidence that this will be a game changer for fintech in Ireland. And uh, I, I was going to lead with this kind of story that when that, you know, I'm almost embarrassed and, and I'll finish with it and said, like, like I'm kind of a, I, I am embarrassed seeing that this is what they're trying to do at this stage in 2021, that this is the best shot they have. It's kind of in Dublin, they have this expression where they're embarrassed for you. They say, uh, I'm scarlet for your ma. So uh, I'm red faced for your mother, you know, because she must be embarrassed as to what you're doing. So like I'm kind of scarlet for your ma here, Banks. Seriously. So, so would it be fair to summarise that, that you're not a huge fan of this? Um, <laughs> Deepa, <laughs> Deepa is a product person. Do you think, I mean, do you agree with that? It's just it's just too late. I mean, because you can displace an established product, right? If you do it right. But it sounds like David's not convinced. <laughs> Um, so I think it's, I mean, I, I agree with the, <laughs> with what David's saying. I think for me, the difference is obviously you can displace, you know, there's always room for creative destruction and competition. I think it's about the how you go about this. So Revolut, you know, the Monzos and Starlings of the world were built in a way, you know, they were, they were built by thinking differently, building something different in a different way, really focusing on, you know, customers' lives and, and a new type of culture and all of that good stuff. So I think it's it's really hard to imagine a world where you're you're using the same ingredients to come up with something completely new that will take on the likes of Revolut, um, and it's it's going to be very much an uphill battle. Um, so obviously, you know, you can never say never, but it's a it's a tough starting point. I think that they've they've given themselves here. Polly, Polly, what do you think about? I mean, this the point that David's making about you know they. You know, this could be done, but perhaps they've gone about it the wrong way. They've not taken advantage of open banking. They're not using SEPA. Um, do, do, do you think he's right? They've just gone about it the wrong way? Or, or do you think it's just dead in water, whatever they do? I mean, I think what's possibly the most interesting thing about this this whole story is that, 
the banks are now challenging the challengers, which um, I guess that was I guess that was the whole point, you know, like the whole point of the challengers was to make banks, you know, try and be more innovative and make more competition and make banking better. Um, and it's like like everyone has already said, it's interesting that they've they've done it like this, and it's interesting that they've done it like this now. Um, so how it will go happen, I I have no idea. But it's it's very interesting. It's definitely an interesting story that is just definitely going to be one to follow. Do we think the ba- Irish banks are in real trouble here? That that you know, I mean, David, based on your scientific Twitter poll of, of forty five people, um, do, I mean, do we do we think that you know the Irish banks are potentially losing su- substantial numbers of customers here? They're starting to lose that kind of mind share of the bank is the place I go not only to store money but to move money. I mean. That this is a significant threat to the Irish banks, right? It is. It will be interesting. I mean, I'm not too concerned for the for the incumbent banks, uh, to be honest. Uh, I mean, b- the fact that Revolut doesn't do lending at this point, I would I would love to see of the million or so people that Revolut uh, uh, say are customers. I would love to see how many of them, you know, transfer their their wages into their account. Uh, you know, I really. My my gut feeling is that is that it is used as a really convenient free tool for sending money amongst your friends and uh, and I would be interested to see you know how much money they actually make here. Um, I think the incumbent banks are still the only place to go for for loans. I think perhaps if Starling get their uh, get their full banking license, they'll be able to start lending here. Um, you know that would that would that would be welcome. But uh, you know, as Polly said, to see a reaction like this from the incumbent banks to to to, to challengers is really interesting. But to be honest, what's really most disappointing, I mean. My relationship and my working life over the last, uh, you know, five or six years has been in London uh, because it is the home of fintech in Europe. It's where things happen and there's a culture where banks engage with startups and make things happen. And then you've got a regulator who has a competition mandate and it's it's a really, you know, things happen. The unfortunate situation with Ireland is that the Central Bank of Ireland does not have a competition mandate, so they're not there to kind of uh, ensure that new entrants come to life, uh, which is which is really really poor. And the fact that um, this consortium have chosen a a a a big provider, let's say, see a you know n- no relation to Ireland. I mean, they could have picked any one of a number of good Irish startups who sit and said, look, why don't we all invest in this? And they, they could probably build this in five minutes, you know? Um, you know, even even ones like uh, Fire.com, who, who have a presence in Ireland and the UK, they're a great payments business. Uh, they provide a huge amount of services to, um, to Barclays. And uh, they are, you know, Asking someone like that who knows the market to to help them build something could have been an interesting way to do it or putting that five million into an interesting startup. Uh, I would have loved to have seen that because unfortunately, we're not seeing the collaboration between fintechs and incumbents here that that I see elsewhere. It's it's sad. We should set up a sweepstake among our listeners to, to predict what will happen. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on. 
So our next story uh, is that Atom Bank in the UK has moved to a four-day week. So this comes from the Times. Um, Atom Bank is moving its staff to a four-day week um, with no loss of pay, making it the biggest UK employer so far to shift away from the traditional five-day week, five-day working week. Um, the smartphone-based bank, which employs 430 people, is moving most of its staff from a 37 and a half hour working week spread over five days to a 34-hour week over four days with the same monthly pay. Staff are now encouraged to work core hours from 9.30 in the morning to 4.30 in the afternoon, Mondays to Thursdays, with those who choose to switch from a five-day week to a four-day week, seeing their daily hours lengthen from seven and a half to eight and a half hours. Atom, which is based in Durham in the northeast of England, was one of the UK's first digital banks um, and has about uh, £2.7 billion in loans on its books in the last financial year. The chief executive, Mark Mullen, told the BBC it was inspired by the pandemic and it hoped to uh, improve the well-being of its staff and retain their staff. To find out more about this, we reached out to Atom Bank about the decision to go to four days. We were inspired to move to a four-day working week by our desire to offer a clear and differentiated proposition to our employees and also to our potential employees, but also by our experiences in managing our business through covid over the last 20 months or so, we found that there's absolutely no direct correlation between office working and commuting to the office and business success. So once you've kind of broken the presumption that coming to the office equals making a business successful, you begin to ask questions about what other dogma are ripe for challenge and change. And we think that in addition to not having to come to an office, which incidentally saves you a bunch of CO2 emissions, we should also examine carefully whether people need to come to the office in that very old-fashioned, orthodox, sort of nine-to-five, four-day-a-week basis. I would say that it is at least as likely to impact productivity positively as negatively, because productivity is influenced as much by quality as by quantity. And so if it helps us become more efficient as a recruitment company, as a retention company, as an engagement company, because there's a huge cost in an enterprise associated with obtaining, onboarding, training, regulating employees. And that's before you get into measures of short-term sickness, long-term sickness and absenteeism, and before you get into energy, health, well-being, motivation, mental health. I would be very surprised if this turned out to be negatively productive. But of course, it's still early days. We're you know just over three weeks in, so we've got work to do. And we're all committed to making it work for our business because people want it. Deepa, what, what, do, you, what do you think about this? Um, you know, 11FS, we have relatively flexible hours, but we're still working five days a week. What do you think on this story without putting you on the spot about your employer? <laughs> I think the key thing here is flexibility and trust. And I think it's great to see this kind of thing come to life. So obviously, we've just come out of the pandemic, something that we might see turn into a bit more of an endemic in the next year. And I think people really shifted their attitudes in terms of work and life and how those two fit together. So I love that Atom have kind of put themselves out there. It's a, it's a brave, it's a bold move. And I think the biggest thing for me is it shows trust in their employees. And, you know, the ideal scenario here is that it kind of fuels the sort of flywheel effect where, you know, you've got satisfied employees who know that their employer trusts them and therefore they're just going to put that effort in 
And actually, you know, you've seen studies show that actually there's no loss of productivity and hopefully actually just, you know, goes to increase the motivation and the satisfaction that people feel at work. Polly, have you seen other other sort of companies going down this path? Have you seen fintechs going this path? What, what, what do you think of this? I mean, I think it's just fantastic. I know fairly recently um, it was in the news that a, a country was trialling um, a four-day week. I can't remember which one it was now. Um, but I think the more you hear about it, the, the more it just seems to be such a good idea. I mean, well-being is possibly the buzzword of the past 18 months or so. Um, and Because it should be. I think people now more than ever are more in tune to well-being, mental health and all that kind of thing. Um, so going to a four-day work week is just completely logical. Um, and like Deepa said, it just shows that employees are trusting um, their staff and they're trusting their staff to do their jobs. And there's no reason why they couldn't do their jobs uh, in a four-day week. So I really hope a lot more fintechs um, in general and, you know, just a lot more companies on the whole take up the four-day work week because I think it's just such a great idea um, and hopefully will help a lot more people um, as a result. I think it might have been France. Um, was, was it France? Are, that sounds about right, yeah. I think it was that the French are remarkably productive. They work shorter hours and get more done than the rest of us Europeans who, who slog away. <laughs> you know, and the French, of course, take a whole month off in, in August, he says. You know, not, not that I'm making any sweeping generalizations, and I apologize to my French friends. <laughs> um, I think what's interesting here is the, is the retention piece as well. So I, I you know, I love the the well being story, but there's also this retention piece. You know, there's this talk of the Great Resignation that you know, as um, countries have come out of the the sort of lockdowns during the pandemic, though obviously some countries are going back into them. That, that employees are suddenly thinking, hang on, you know, I want to think differently about my career. David, do you do you see this as as something that's going to encourage loyalty? Do you think Atom Bank will will succeed in retaining happier employees by doing this? I think it's uh, I think it's fantastic. Uh, I, f- funny, I had a, a friend who worked at McKinsey who used to say that uh, they loved the French working week so much uh, at McKinsey they did it twice. <laughs> uh, so you know, <laughs> I think that's when they you know it was a minimum of seventy hours a week there, but. Um, yeah, the people just aren't aren't standing for it anymore. the The way we have worked has has, has absolutely changed, and I see even um, you know fintech startup uh, when then based out of Dublin, they've raised about six million or so. They're now piloting a four day week, a uh, really cool payments company. I think the I, I work remotely in Lextago all the time. There's no we we don't sit on top uh, of people and and check their hours and do that. It's all about just the jobs to be done. Um, you know, get it. It's 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 that flexibility I think that people need. And as things are 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 more distributed now. I think it makes makes a huge amount of, amount of sense to go, to go this way. So I I think Adam really are, are are taking a good lead. I mean they were one of the leaders in terms of challenger banks so uh, emerging, and now they seem to be taking the lead again on this type of positive efforts to to really keep people in the workforce, uh, keep them engaged, and 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 really show that show that. Uh, they they want to do their best to to make life easier for people. Deepa, I know you're you're a parent like me. Do you think a four day week is more important or flexibility? Which do you think makes more difference? Is it the flexibility to work when you choose, or just work, working for four known days a week? Which do you think is more useful? I'm curious. 
And I can't say both. <laughs> well, you can say both. Are you? <laughs> Why not? So I think for me, flexibility is the biggest thing. I think, um, as David said, it's, I think actually, Polly, you mentioned this as well. It's the, you know, you, you have the ownership to get your job done and how you get that job done is more important than where you are, your hours, that sort of thing. Having said that, I'm a big advocate for a four day week, obviously. Um, I think, but I think flexibility would be the, the the absolute key thing. So, what about the the customers? I think one of Atom Bank's challenges in implementing this is obviously they, you know, the customers are expecting them to be available five days a week, and so they've obviously got some employees that they they need to be in on Fridays or, or, or whatever. Um, Polly, do you think that's going to be a, a problem? You know, trying to trying to serve customers. How do you manage this? Maybe this this. The shorter working week with customers' expectations of kind of twenty-four by seven service from banks. I mean, I guess realistically, uh, it's probably going to have a few bumps in the road as they start implementing it and get into the swing of things. But I don't see any reason why there would be any break to any um, customer services or anything like that. You know, obviously, a four-day week doesn't necessarily mean everyone has a Monday off. You could quite easily roll it. Some people have Mondays off, some people have Tuesdays off, and so on. Um, and that would still get the benefit of the four-day week. If anything, a day off right in the middle of the week would probably be quite nice. Then you've essentially got two two-day weeks more than anything. Um, but I don't think that customers are going to see any disruption. And I think more importantly, Atom wouldn't have gone through with the change if they thought that it was going to be an issue. Um, customers, I would assume, that are going to be quite high on their priority list. So I I would think that they've really thought about this. And I think. If they do it successfully, I think definitely we're going to see a lot more people doing it down the road as well. There's no reason why other banks can take it up if Atom have already done it and shown that it can be done. Excellent. I, well, I, I certainly hope so. And I, I love the way you just repositioned it as, as two-day weeks. Two two-day two, two two, weeks. Two day weeks. <laughs> definitely. You've, it's the way uh, to go. Mr. Trick, and in your career, you should have been a marketer. That's my <laughs> new thing. I'm going to campaign for that now. Never mind the four-day week, two two-day weeks. Okay, so now for the part of the show um, where we quickly round up uh, some of the other stories um, from the week that we don't have time to cover fully, but still deserve a bit of a shout out. Deepa, do you want to get us started? Sure. So shares in a London listed fintech, Mode Global, crashed after claims it was working with some of the UK's top retailers on a Bitcoin cashback scheme crumbled. Mode said it was launching Bitcoin cashback in partnerships with 40 retailers next year, including Ocado, Homebase and Boots. CEO Ryan Moore said the announcement was a major step that would help put Bitcoin into the hands of millions of customers across the UK. However, Ocado, Homebase and Boots all subsequently denied being involved in the project. Mode was then forced to clarify its earlier statement. The company said that it engaged with certain specific brands through an affiliate program rather than directly. Mode, however, vowed to still launch its Bitcoin cashback program early next year. So definitely an interesting one. Uh, Boots, Ocado and Homebase coming out with some fairly strong denials there for the avoidance of any doubt. Um, but I wonder if whether perhaps this is a case of a startup wanting to make some noise quite early doors, totally understandably, but maybe being a little bit too keen in the meantime. I think so. Our next story is from Bloomberg and among others. Uh, so this is India's Paytm. Uh, stock price has tumbled another 13% after a first day IPO initial public offering flop. Um, so shares in India's uh, digital payments giant uh, Paytm plummeted for a second day after its $2.5 billion initial public offering. Uh, the further drop in the share price marks one of the worst debuts ever by a major technology company. Uh, the stock fell about 13% on Monday after a 27% 
plunge in its debut last Thursday, cutting its market value to around $12 billion. Paytm's parent company, 197 Communications, raised a record IPO sum, but the disastrous trading debut sparked criticism that the company and its investment bankers had pushed too hard in the offering. Um, And the stumble by India's largest digital payments provider may chill some of India's stock market boom, um, which had ranked among the world's most frenzied. so I was really I was sorry to to see this. You know, we were talking about sort of investors in free trade earlier. I think it's great when people um, invest their money in stocks and, and choose carefully. But you know, stocks can go down as well as up. Um, Paytm is so widespread in India; it's, it's everywhere in India. I can see why lots of retail investors would have thought it was a really good bet. Um, I hope the stock rebounds uh, for them. But I guess it's a painful lesson that you need to learn that yeah. Not every stock goes up, and you have to pick your pick your investments carefully. Um, if you want to hear more about uh, Indian fintech scene, uh, you can listen to episode 581 of Fintech Insider Insights, um, which featured guests from Tide India and financial inclusion platform Salt, and we talked all about uh, fintech in India. Back to you, Deepa, for the next story. So Fronted has closed a £20 million debt and equity round to help expand to a whole new section of the rental market. Fastenara Capital is leading the funding and fronted CEO Jamie Campbell told Altfi that the majority of the raise is debt with only 1 million as equity. Fronted is introducing a new lifetime deposit product aimed at existing renters who need to, pro- need to provide a new deposit to move before they receive their last deposit. Fronted's lifetime deposit solution is a 10-week bridge financing product with a £40 one-off deposit that sees renters able to unlock their existing deposit and use it towards the next property. Fronted then received this deposit at a later date once it's released. Ironically, at the end of 2019, Boris Johnson introduced a similar lifetime deposit plan um, to what Fronted has uh, been built. However, this was actually never introduced. So the prop tech industry has had an absolute bumper year with over $9.5 billion in funding through to mid-November. That was according to the FT. And I think what's great about this is there's so much opportunity in the market. It's one that's absolutely ripe for disruption. So it's really great to see these kind of products hitting the market. They can make material differences to people's lives. It's simple. It's solving a clear problem. And you've got a market ready for the taking. To hear a little more about this, we reached out to Jamie Campbell, co-founder of Fronted. Thanks for having me on the show. I uh, just want to update you on the latest news at Fronted. Um, very pleased to announce yesterday that we have raised £20 million in debt and equity to launch a new product, which we're really excited about, called the Lifetime Deposit. When we asked a number of our customers and, and new clients who were joining the platform what their biggest problem was when, when it came to deposits, most of them told us that they only really needed to finance a you know one month to two month period where their new landlord for their new property wanted a deposit paid and their old deposit in their existing property wanted to hold on to their their old deposit for as long as possible so this cash flow um problem which lasted roughly roughly 35 days on average um and could cost people on average you know 2500 pounds was a real burden for a lot of people. Um, and so the lifetime deposit product uh, is really cool because it, what it essentially allows you to do is pay a new deposit using your old one. So we transfer that deposit from the deposit scheme where it, where it is currently protected 
into the new into the into the new scheme with the, with the new landlord. So it's very cool. Um, it means that a lot of people are going to be able to use this. It doesn't have the the same um, you know the, the the same way of assessing customers as our as our existing product. So yeah, we're very very excited to get this off the ground. Uh, we've got a couple more announcements um, you know, for either later in the year or early next year, which will uh, which will be even cooler. Thank you. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final story of the week. So Nike has teamed up with Roblox to create a virtual world called Nike Land. Uh, this comes from CNBC. So sports giant Nike has taken a leap into the metaverse. Uh, the American company has announced that it's partnered with Roblox to create a virtual world called Nike Land on Roblox's online gaming platform. The virtual world includes Nike buildings, fields and arenas for players to compete in various mini games, ranging from tag and dodgeball to the floor is lava. I don't know what that is. Um, the company eventually plans to integrate in-play moments that emulate global sporting events, uh, e.g. a football event during the, the World Cup. Um, and users will also be able to enter a digital showroom to dress their avatar in everything Nike and check out the company's latest product offerings. Um, so, wow. Uh, what do you guys think about the metaverse and uh, Nike jumping in? I mean, nobody's as big a Nike fan as David Breer, uh, so it's a pity he's, I uh, was thinking he's that. not here for that. He uh, would have I a mean, strong surely, opinion. Surely 11FS will have its own space in the uh, in, in Nike land, you know, uh, in, with the Air Force Ones. But um, I think, I mean, my kids, uh, I have, you know, kids 16, 14, 12 and 10, and, and the younger kids, uh, 12 and 10 year olds are just... Uh, you know, if we want to get them to do some stuff like pick up around the house or help it out at all, it's, uh, you know, it's usually in in return for allowing them half an hour on Roblox. I mean, it is where children love playing. It's it's an amazing tie up, I think, being able to to get the products there to where children are 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 spending time and having fun is is going to be a long-term bet for them which which will pay off i'm sure in terms of adults uh you know i i, I don't know about the adult uh targeting within roblox itself but all in all i think um i think it's uh if ever is there's going to be a good place to do this for nike with 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 the right partner i think this is clever clever stuff so good luck yeah it's it's quite a far-sighted move isn't it partnering with with roblox it's a really really interesting interesting because it's not just a I mean, to me, it feels like it's not just a gimmick. Um, this is, you know, potentially a really interesting opportunity. I mean, if they if they gain uh, rewards within Roblox, and then that entitles them to buy special editions uh, of, uh, you know, trainers or or hoodies or whatever it might be. I mean, that's that's where you know, bringing the metaverse and uh, e-commerce and. Uh, what is what was formerly known as real life <laughs> to life uh you know <laughs> uh, i think that's a cool thing i think it's really interesting in terms of a move to make or to continue to keep the brand relevant so if you think about nike as a you know if it's personified it's a very physical it's all about you know the going outside and you know whatever so this is a way to kind of i guess um 
keep them relevant, you know, as we move into a more digital world. I don't know if you saw this this point um, that that it's also there's an exercise element to it. Polly, I mean, there's this this thing where you can connect your smartphone's accelerometer to record your physical movements and so on. So it's a little bit like the the Nintendo Wii that you know got people sort of exercising until they learned that you know they could <laughs> sort of game the system by uh, by not actually exercising. Um, but you know that shows that Nike's sort of trying to keep to its sort of physical exercise message and stay on stay on brand with this, right? Yeah, I mean, I will say that it either shows my age, the fact I don't have kids, or maybe how completely uncool I am. But I had to Google Roblox um, upon reading this story because I had no idea what it was. So I know what it is now, so I'm informed. But I mean, I guess... I guess with the the metaverse um, and everything that's that's going on with the digital world now, uh, it makes sense for Nike to sort of branch out into such a land. And like you say, with the exercise point, people aren't necessarily going out as they used to. I mean, Pokemon Go did a great thing for getting people to go outside. Um, so maybe Nike is a similar kind of thing where their people are going to want to go outside and go for a run to get their awards or whatever it is that they do on Roblox. Um, yeah, this this whole like this whole section of the industry with the metaverse and stuff is just so interesting. And I'm still wrapping my head around it and I don't think I quite understand it. But once I do, um, it's gonna change the game. And yeah, it's just it's very interesting. That's all I have to say. <laughs> It, it, it is, isn't it? But it's, it's almost the point David made about you know certain younger generations who just grown up with this that they just assume that connection between uh, the real world and the digital world, and, and that it's, so that it's completely natural to see them combined together in a way that someone old like me uh, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't see it. So. Okay, fantastic. Um, well, that uh, sadly um, brings us to the end of, of this week's uh, new show. Thank you so much uh, to our guests. It's been fantastic um, having you on. Thank you for all your contributions. Where can um, people find out uh, more more about you? And let's, let's do ladies first. So Polly. Um, you can check out the Fintech Times website or you can follow me on Twitter at opollygene or find me on LinkedIn. And Deepa. You can find me on LinkedIn at DeepAnakindi or 11FS.com. And David? At LexTago.com or uh, me personally on LinkedIn, David Cunningham, or Twitter at Dave Barnett. And as for me, I'm Benjamin Ensor. I'm on LinkedIn uh, or at 11FS.com. And thank all of you for listening. Um, please uh, join the conversation on social media or email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much indeed, and goodbye.